Welcome to the Singapore Noodles Podcast. I'm your host, Pamelia Chia, and in each episode, I speak with people who are keeping the Singaporean food heritage alive in their own way. Listen to why we should be proud of Singaporean food and why it is worthy of preservation and celebration alongside the great cuisines of the world. Today, my guest is Celestia Tan, the head chef of Restaurant Labyrinth, a one-star Michelin modern Singaporean restaurant. He started cooking at Kendall Nut, and has worked in Australia at Nell, Gelato Messina, and Olio, where he was sous chef and pastry chef. Despite his diverse cooking experiences, he feels the most strongly about flavors from home. Hi, hello. It's so nice to finally get to talk to you because I've been hearing so much about you. <laughs> when I was working at Canonat, I always hear your name, but I think you're <laughs> you as someone, right? Not Alastia. Yeah, someone. So maybe you can tell you can start by telling me a little bit about your childhood. What exactly inspired you to become a chef? Mm. Okay, my childhood is quite different in a sense. I mean, if I tell a story of my childhood with other people, they might see it like some um, sad sob story, right? But for me personally, when I look back, right, I don't really feel much negativity. It's actually quite a positive one for me, I guess. Because um, as a kid, I grew up in an average family. Uh, I'm the youngest child. Um, siblings that I have, I have three. I have two brothers and one sister. We have huge age gap. The, young, the, the earliest one, I mean not the earliest one, the closest gap was eight years. And the largest one was like 30. Yeah, about 30. So it's quite a weird family situation, but I, think, I guess we made it work lah. My father, he was a angry person, so uh, physically abusive. And as a kid, when I grew up, he would take out his anger on me. He would beat me, uh, but I don't feel any negativity towards him. So luckily for me, I forgive easily. But I, don't f- I remember all these things, but I don't know. You know what I mean? So when I was fifteen, my parents divorced. And that made me very independent. It, it like sort of wake me up, like uh, push myself to be able to do something in life. So when I was six, 17, I took up a job at Starbucks just to be able to give a little bit something back to my mom, you know, like for all her years as an independent woman. She was very strong. She was a businesswoman. She was running uh, multiple concepts. But due to her... Uh, problems with marriage life, she couldn't focus on her business. So, so certain aspects of the business part like, fell through, la, kind of thing. So it was quite a rocky time for our family. And my mom is my role, my role model. She was always this, uh, she was presented a very strong uh, front. She was like the epitome of a feminist, la, I guess. Like, I don't need a man. I can take care of four kids by myself. And she raised us all. I mean, and they were from different, we had, she had three partners and I was the son from the third partner. So we are siblings from different men who let her down in her life. So I kind of grew up as a, I guess, a feminist. So I strongly support like strong females, uh, strong women and stuff like that. And so there's a, a huge part of that um, grew up with me la, in a sense. And she always believed in uh, experiencing different cultures, especially food. So no matter how bad times were, 
every year she would try to bring us all for a holiday somewhere to see something new, learn something new. And uh, in the past, we would go to China, go to Thailand. Uh, she would bring me to Thailand and to live in temples in Hat Yai when I was like 8 to 14. To just, to just live in a temple. And it was in the middle of nowhere. It was like red dirt roads for two hours from the city. And I'll leave, I'll, I'll go chopping bamboos and just imagine it's like some sort of a kung pole and just chase chickens or um, disturb red ants' nests at Rambutan trees. And it was quite fun actually. And so that was my childhood. And I always had a interest in food. I mean, I'm a fat kid. I'm still a fat kid. I, I'll, I'll eat kuei up or eat chicken chicken guts or fish eyes, fish brains, as long as, as early as I can remember. My mom would always like, hey, try it out, try it out. Just, you know, so I always believe in try everything, you know. And, but I never really thought of food as a career. And uh, during my O-levels, right, I actually wanted to be a hotel manager. So I aced a lot of subjects. I had like A1 for languages, uh, both Chinese and English. I had like B3 in my arts, like humanities, literature. Literature, I had A2 as well, etc., etc. But I failed my math. I couldn't do math at all. I, even now, I suck at math. Like, since I was 12, I failed math. And that made me not be able to go anywhere. So basically, the government told me that, okay, your L1R4, L1R5, I remember I was 16 or something, including my math was E8. I said, you can't go anywhere. I tried to apply for RP, nursing, 28. Cannot also. Oh my God. So they told me, you can only go ITE. So at that moment, right, when I was 16 years old, right, just because of math. But, uh, yeah. But I mean, I understand uh, math was very important. But the thing is, at 16 year old, being told that you can go in life, not looking okay, not nowhere in life, being told that you cannot go where our peers are going, and you had to go, your only option was IT or private. It was like a crushing blow you know, to whatever dreams that I had. And I felt I did relatively well on other aspects of studies, like the languages and the humanities and whatnot, right? So... I was evaluating and evaluating and I realized that why not be a chef, right? I mean, I like food. I always eat. I mean, everybody eat. And I was always watch Discovery Channel or Food Network or whatever and look at travels and food like Anthony Bourdain and whatever. So like, why, why, did I, why did I not ever think about being a chef? And that was before I knew what being a chef was. Then I tried to apply for culinary school or whatnot or stuff like that. Lah. And I look at Sunrise. Sunrise told me that they can only take in uh, Singaporeans males who have done the NS. Hmm. So I was 17, right? And nowhere to go. So, okay, now I want to take up a diploma at MDIS in hospitality. Might as well, right? I mean, it was like 6K, um, one and a half years, uh, not, not too long of a time, and just in time for my 18 years old to be enlisted. So I took, uh, took it up and I met some amazing friends. That's one of the best time of my life. I was, honestly, I wasn't studying a lot. La. I was just playing L4D and skipping school. La. And, you know, then I went to Starbucks while waiting for my NS. Then I went to NS. NS for two years, I was simply waiting for time to pass. And re- in my time in NS, uh, camera phones were not allowed yet. My only form of entertainment was my Nokia 3310. So it was like, my form of entertainment was only like snakes or uh, space impact on the, on the phone or books. Books like Anthony Bourdain's, like uh, Kitchen Confidential or Gordon Ramsay's uh, uh, biography, which is all still here, actually. 
Oh my gosh, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. What's it called? It's called White Heat, is it? Oh no, that uh, is... White Heat is Marco, Marco's. Marco Pio. Like Humble Pie. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've read so, that. He, he talks about his uh, football career. Yeah, his own childhood as well. How he came from nothing with an opposite father as well. And to become who he is right now. So that was a very huge source of inspiration for myself. And this was all I had to get through my two years of NS. And luckily for me, when I was going to ORD, uh, I went to apply for Sunrise again. And like, this was like two months before I ORD. And they were like, hey, uh, I think you could try for the Miller, Miller Guide Scholarship. Miller Guide was a thing back then. Malcolm was the first Miller Guide Scholar. And I was the last. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we met and I went through a series of interviews and uh, whatnot and a lot of panels. And then I, I got a scholarship, luckily for me, because uh, this saved our family finances. Because unfortunately, when I was 20 years old, at year 2012, November, unfortunately, my mom was diagnosed with a terminal illness. Mm. So she had uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. She passed four months later. And we were burning through uh, the finances really, really quickly. Like, in a matter of weeks, we was, we, in like two weeks, we spent 30K. And whatever source of financer, financial help would be welcome. Uh. So it was like, just when, when I first got it, when we got it, right, everyone was so happy. It was like, whoa, it's like, I, I, I'm, I'm, at, I'm an atheist, uh, basically. I don't believe. I don't say I don't believe. Maybe there's something out there, I don't know. But they were like, all like, People who believe they say, oh, God is helping you, or I don't know, lah. I, just, I just take it by a stride. Like, oh, it's meant to be, perhaps. So, yeah, so I got a scholarship to study at uh, Sunrise, and that's where I went to. Lah. Thanks so much for sharing, you know, such a personal story. I think I can relate to some parts of your story, because mm. um, my parents were also divorced. I think that is what really compelled me to start cooking. Because, you know... You know, in a broken family, I think the relationships were not very good. And so you can just live in the same house but not talk. Yeah. But still, you know, I wanted to, I wanted a way to kind of show my family members that I cared about them, that I love them. And I think the most, the least awkward way is through food, you know. Yeah, I because, guess, yeah. <laughs> I guess for Asians, it's like so awkward to say, I love you or like, how is your day? You know, yeah. even having fundamental conversations like that is really awkward when you don't have that kind of culture or you're not close so I think that's how I started cooking a lot you know I would just cook something and then put it on the table mm-hmm. and then I'll just go back into my room you know and that is my way of showing them that I care and you know the part where you talked about how your mom really instilled that kind of adventurous eating in you it was the same for me and my mom because um, I love Kuwaita when I was growing up. She introduced yeah. me to it. So I remember how she would try to like trick me into eating offal. She'd be like, uh, this is like Chinese chewing gum. <laughs> you know, um, pig stomach, right? It has like a really yeah. texture. And she was like, you know, everything you have to try at least once. If you don't like it, then you can just leave it. But at least just try it. Yeah. And I think that... Yeah, don't beat it till you try it, right? Yeah. And I think that followed me like throughout my life, you know, having that kind of curiosity and that kind of um, uh, adventurous eating, which really helped me a lot as a cook. So why, why was it that you decided to join Canona? Was it because you were interested in local flavors back then? 
So uh, when the Mila Guide was launched in 2013, in February, I was only one and a half month into culinary school, zero experience. And I had to help Malcolm with his uh, event. He was doing canapes and he had this truffle burger deal. And me and my uh, co-scholarship, uh, because there was one local, one uh, foreigner. Ma. And her name was Karen. She was from Philippines. We had to help Malcolm and, uh, with his food stand. Uh. And that's how we met. That's how I met Malcolm. And he was like, I remember him asking me, hey, you have any experience? I said, no. But at that point of time, I read Anthony Bourdain's books so much that I kind of know how to behave. Like, you know, you got to be fast, you got to be quick, you got to be proactive. You kind of stand there, wait for things to happen. And he thought that I had experience, but I was only one and a half month uh, school student. And that was the first point of that, that one year later made me want to try going to local cuisine. Because throughout my, my uh, schooling life. I wanted to go into French and go into Italian. I, I had dreams of uh, Ducasse or Robuchon or Paris. Back then, it was all about the three stars, the French, um, the, the, the cuisine of it all. And when I graduated, I, I started to apply for Robuchon and John and etc. And while waiting for them to get back, I remember I texted Malcolm and when I first met him in February, he didn't um, open a restaurant yet at Dorset. My classmate, Robbie, went to work for him as an intern. And I had to go there as an intern, but I couldn't because back then the school had like an Asian six months uh, apprenticeship and a Western six months apprenticeship. So I had to go to the one, uh, second, second, second uh, one. And Robbie worked there and he was really happy. And uh, Robbie's one of my good friends as well. So after graduation, I texted Malcolm like, hey, uh, how are you? I was like, catch up with that. Lah. It wasn't like uh, anything much. Lah. So I went for... for, for, for to have a meal at Dorset. I remember I brought my ex-girlfriend there and uh, we were celebrating our anniversary. And I had the food there and it was amazing. It was great. I was like, wow, this is WTF. It's like familiar yet different. And and I was so blown away. And it reminded me of the meal that I had at Nam. They were like Asian number one or two. I forgot already. I was like, Thai food. I've been to Thailand so many times. I can't imagine how Thai food is like. I mean, all I know was Pad Thai and the street food and the skewers. So I tried Nam, a lunch, a lunch at Nam, and I was like, also blown away. I was like, wow, crab curry or it's freaking spicy yet so good. And they had this star fruit on the side to eat with the noodles just to make it less spicy. And the dessert was uh, jasmine water, jasmine syrup actually with fresh fruits. And uh, I couldn't imagine Asian food to be done like that, even even 2013, 2014. Mm. So when I had the food at Canal like three months later, I saw the DNA in it. I saw, I saw the, I saw what's the potential that it could be from Canal Nut. Mm. And so I was like, fuck it, I'm going to work here, man. I'm going to work here. Well, I don't know how to cook all this food. Yeah. I was like, so I asked him, uh, I want a job here. Like, yeah, sure, let's go. And, yeah, I, I, and, consequently, and consequently, I started pulling people in and my friends, my classmates, even now, uh, I don't know if you know Wei Ping or not. Yeah, Wei Ping. I know. Yeah, she was my, she's my classmate. Really? She was working at Sheraton for like 18, 18 years or I don't know what. Yeah. And she was stuck at a big end job. And I told her, fuck it, your contract is out already. Just go Candle Nut. So I put them together and now she's there happily. And that's how I got to start working at Candle Nut. And that's how shape, it shaped my uh, ideals on cooking local food. It wasn't like something that I want to know, I want to do right from the start. It's not that noble. Uh. But then I always believe in one thing as well. Like there are many paths that people can take to in their career. Like they can go Noma, they can go to Cast, Robuchon. 
But these roads are already very, very, very much traveled upon. Hmm. You throw a stone out there right now, right? everybody's from Noma, everybody's from somewhere. Hmm. But there's only a few that can say they're from Canada. And as a Singaporean, I think that's quite special to me. Hmm. I prefer to go the road less traveled because I believe that when you are special, you really win half the battle. And, it, and, and uh, I read this phrase in uh, Alex Atala's book, Dom. There's a phrase in the front. He said that the reason how he got into cooking Brazilian cuisine was when he one day he realized that he was looking at Dukas, by the way. He, he realized that he couldn't cook French food like the French. Because no matter what, no matter how amazing you do it, the French will still go for the French. Yeah. And he's simply recreating. He did not, he did, he did not live the life of it. He did not grow up with it. Mm. And this is what I feel as well. I grew up with Singaporean food. I grew up with all these experiences that we have. Sure, I can cook Italian food. I can cook pasta. I can cook French. Maybe the French people, Italian people like it as well. But I feel that I'm being an imposter. Mm. I don't feel I don't feel hundred percent happy or satisfied cooking this food. Mm. I can do it, but I don't. Some, but I, but with my life experience I had with life and death, I feel that I shouldn't be doing something that I'm not happy with. Yeah. Why waste time? Yeah. Why, why waste time doing what I don't want to do? It's the whole point of being a chef is to do what you're happy with. So I feel I'm gonna do I'm gonna do I'm gonna do local, local food, and this is before the whole Michelin Wuha where Parakan Food suddenly is the poster boy of everything. Back then, I thought said, right, people hated us, man. 2014. Like, they were like, what is a bunch of young idiots doing with uh, traditional cuisine? You can ask Malcolm. So people will come in, you're like, hey, my ama can cook better than this. But they come every week. Yeah. And like, hey, your ama can cook better than us. Your ama cook better. That's what Malcolm would say. What? <laughs> I think that's the thing about anything to do with local food. To yeah. be honest, it really annoys me sometimes. I mean, I, I think it reflects uh, how much pride people have in local food, but at the same time, the huge barrier to entry, you know, whether you are a restaurateur, you are a chef, or you're a content creator developing recipes, I think that's always like a huge barrier because people are always going to be like, hey, my ama puts puts uh, kaffir lime leaves in this dish. Yeah. Put. You know, it's really annoying because there is no one standardized way to make anything in Singapore. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, who, who is to say, who is the authority on saying what is right, what is wrong? Yeah. So it's like art and culture. It, it, yeah. it evolves constantly. Maybe my, uh, my family culture is my ama to put uh, white pepper in whatever. Lah. But your ama don't put, put black, black pepper. <laughs> who is to say whose ama is right or wrong? No one. As long as you eat, you enjoy, you're happy and you have good memories of it. I'm think, I think it's fine. You know what I mean? Food is about memories and the cultural aspect of it. But saying that, do you believe that there is such a thing as an authority on local food or like a doyen, you know? Like, for example, people always say Mrs. Leong Isu is like the authority on Singaporean food or like, say, uh, Malcolm Lee or Chef Damien, you know? They would be like mm. the gatekeepers of this heritage food. So, would you think that whatever they say and whatever, you know, their way of creating a dish or cooking a dish is always the right way? This is a question that has no right or wrong answer. Yeah, la, of course. It's, it's very, firstly, it's very touchy. Secondly, I feel that food, right, just like art, right, when there's too much rules, uh, it just takes the fun out of it all. Yeah. For sure, there should be some guidelines. Mm -hmm. There should be some ground rules. But like I said, at the end of the day, food is a very personal thing. You can like it. I cannot like it. You cannot force me to like what you like. Mm. And as long as my guests who eat it, they like it. Who are you to say that my guest is wrong or I am wrong? You know, I, I can totally re relate to what you said about how back then 
uh, the big things were like French, Italian. Like I feel that the scene back then was so different from what it is now. Right now, it is so hip to do Peranakan food, to do local heritage okay. food. Local cuisine is only cool when Werner, Michelin guide, told us that our cuisine is worth a Michelin star. Yeah. Then Singaporeans were like, oh, our local food is worth a Michelin star. The bat me, the chicken rice, candle nut. And then they were like, yeah. Then they, then they gave attention to it. But before that, no one gave a shit about us. We were just a bunch of 20-somethings and early 30s doing some shit in our kitchen that nobody gave a shit about. Mm. Back then, in 2014, 15, it was, it was the hot stars. Uh. It was Jean, it was, it was Julian Royer, it was Andre. The best restaurant in Singapore, foreigners cooking foreign food in the country. Nothing, nothing against them. They were amazing chefs, amazing cuisine. But I think that this has to change. It changed, it changed slightly, but it's still there. It's still there. Better than last time, but I think we're getting there. Yeah, I totally and, agree. Like, I feel that Singaporeans almost feel a sense of inferiority inferiority because like they feel that some foreign power has to justify or has to say that our cuisine is good enough or any part of our culture you know in order Mm. for it to really make it like just think about like not just in the food industry but think about people like joanna dong right recently she she became so successful because she went on to a international global singing competition mm. and she, she did really well. And then suddenly she had all these opportunities in Singapore. Exactly. This is why I went to Australia in the first place. Because my first initial plan was to be successful in Australia and then come back to Singapore. Mm. Because only when I have international recognition will my own countrymen support me. I mean, look at uh, um, JL Studio, two Michelin stars. And now he's a superhero in Singapore. Or Kenneth, who's the head chef of Noma. Mm. And right now he's so much support. And Max of Momofuku Co. Mm. So my idea was to get successful in Australia and then come back. Okay. But I mean, I got a, a very good job offer at Labyrinth. That's why I came back as well. I mean, my, my brother told me, it's not every day that he got offered a job as a head chef at a Michelin star restaurant, Singaporean queen at age 26. Mm. Well, like, yeah, you make a freaking good point. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I took it and came back already without any further ado. Living overseas, right? Did that shape you in wanting to kind of um, continue on this path of uh, exploring local food, local flavors? Or was, mm. did you see Candle Nut as, you know, just laying a foundation for you to understand your roots and then you wanted to go ahead with, like, say, more global flavors? Mm. So um, living abroad, the experience was amazing. It was life-changing. It was a very big step of my life because I sunk my life savings into having an education at Le Cordon Bleu doing pastry, which I had zero experience in and I was freaking afraid of pastry because I don't understand it at all. And I was, I remember I was living at a two by two meter balcony, glass balcony of a Turkish man in uh, Sydney Central at Little, Little Thailand, George Street. And there was a sink beside me and uh, cockroaches at night and I'll wake four years was try as big as cockroaches. And my mattress, it was uh, picked up from uh, the apartment's car park trash site. <laughs> so me and my friend walked past and like, hey, the mattress look okay. Eh. Then we go and steal it. <laughs> Not steal it, we took it from the trash and put it in my room. So I'm living in a two meter by two meter glass balcony and having education at the column. 
so a lot of people see the good that I like. Wow, you twenty six year old, you climb very far in life or whatsoever. People of my peers or my senior of my age, they will say that. But I don't see that the sacrifices that people make at the behind the scenes. So and having that kind of experience, it gave me a lot of time of reflection. And during my three years in Australia, I was cooking food not of my culture. I, I did I did British, I did gelato, I did uh, a little bit of pastry, I did Italian. It's not something that I'm hundred percent. I don't I don't I don't feel hundred percent for. Or even when I did my stages at Key or at Ledbury in UK, I was doing amazing food. Food that tastes amazing, but it went to the mouth. It didn't go to the heart. And while doing this food, I felt a disconnect. Hmm. It was like, I don't feel for this, you know. I don't feel the love for it. Besides, uh, compared to cooking, cooking a big pot of rendang and canola, like stirring the bloody sauce with the shield, with the thing as the shield trying to not shoot in my eye, the oil. And it further reaffirms my um, thoughts that I need to do what I need to be happy at, which is food that I can relate to. It's, it's not even about a matter of deliciousness. It's not a matter of what tastes good or not. It's just a matter of what you feel is comfortable and what you feel is right, I guess. Mm. It's rather saying the words, like, it's something that can only be felt. Yeah. So yeah. now at Labyrinth, what kind of food do you cook? Labyrinth is quite a special restaurant. I don't think there's any restaurant in the world right now doing what you do. So Chef Han is uh, mostly self-taught. And having that kind of uh, background, he has this a lot of amazing ideas. Sometimes I even, even I go like, what? Really? <laughs> like cereal prawn ice cream as a dessert. It took a lot for me to get warm to the idea of it, but it works. Because somehow Asian food in Singapore, we have always had this sugar to it. And cereal as a dessert, not so crazy, right? But cereal prawn dessert. Now like, oh. mm. So we always push our, push our boundaries with local cuisine. and we always see what's possible, what's possible with local flavors. And many people get the wrong idea that we're trying to do like modernist or trying to say like, this is what modern food should be. The hawker food scene, right, or the local food scene, right, is already a perfect wheel. We're not perfecting the wheel. Mm. We're looking at the wheel from a different angle. It's, it's, it's a matter of for us Singaporean chefs in the kitchen to express what we experience as a Singaporean. It's just, it's just like, it's like, like a condensed version of our Singapore yeah. through the lens of Chef Han and Labyrinth. And was there any objection or any people who were not happy with the kind of price point uh, that they were paying at Labyrinth for basically reinventions of hawker dishes, which are really, really cheap? All this uh, resistance only come from people who have never been here. And the, the, for us, the challenge, number one challenge is getting people through the door. But once they're in, the first bite they have, they understand, they understand what we're trying to do. Because at the end of the day, it's about good food. And it's about food made with care and love. Now, with locals being the main consumer base, locals obviously have their own stereotype about local food. That it should be cheap, accessible, fast, quick, at Kopitiam. And when they have heard about food like uh, Labyrinth or even Kelownut, they really have their own preconception already. Like, what the hell? Can eat meh? Can full meh? But obviously, at library, we are very generous of portions. And if you're not have full, we make sure you're full. So we love to serve local, local people. When they come in, they have this kind of concept. They come in, they're a bit skeptical. And when they eat, as, as they slowly progress through the menu, they, they, they get happier and happier. And you can see their face, they're like, oh, 
if I understand what the hell we're trying to do. Hmm. It's not just it's not just saying uh, I I make a Hokkien me, and instead of using prawn I use langoustine. We're not doing that. That's just an easy way out. So at Labyrinth, um, how do you guys actually elevate Singaporean cuisine? Because one of the questions that was asked previously by a chef was, uh, what is modern Asian to you? Is it taking street food and putting it on a pretty plate? So what, what do you feel elevates the food at Labyrinth? So firstly, produce. Unfortunately, uh, with hawkers, the price will never changes. I mean, maybe slightly. And this is another whole big can of worms. Singapore's not willing to pay for local food. So the uncle who's tried Hokkien Mee for 25 years, he raised his price by 50 cents, people cow pay already. And what, what happens like that? With rising costs, the uncle has to cut costs, he has to use more MSG, he has to find maybe foreign talents, foreigners to help him alleviate his workload because he's like 70 years already. And so the food still tastes okay. I mean, what elevates it is that with our price point, we have more freedom to use better ingredients. And fr- ingredients that are taken care of, like prawns that are picked out by our, our suppliers by hand or herb, uh, cut daily by our farmers at Edible Gardens, or, or crabs that come in life every day and we steam it life. And, they're not, and, and so I think elevation of Asian food because, okay, Asian food, right, started off as, it has never been about the, the enjoyment of it. It's always been about survival, Asian countries. It's, it's, it's about getting through a day. It's about having the most calories to help you with your workload. And only recently in Asian cu- culture, like I would say maybe the past 50, 60 years, that Asian food started to slowly morph into luxury or eating food for the sake of enjoyment. Compared to uh, French or Italian, they have a much longer history of eating food for the, for just for the enjoyment of the craft, the cuisine, or the produce. So Asian cuisine has a little bit lag time behind the Western cultures. So elevation of Asian food, I feel it's simply not just taking street food, the same as I think I put on a nicer plate and in a nicer way, whatever. I think that it has to be with technique, ingredient, and simply just putting more love into it. Because right now we're doing 25 packs. Compared to an uncle doing one guy doing a 200 packs a day, there's definitely a lapse in care. Yep. It's not something that we can shout about. It's not something that we can show the customer. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this is what we do. And then they have to be felt through taste buds. And mm-hmm. they are able to discern that or not. And that's up to the consumer already. Like yep. whether the consumer can taste a sushi made from Jiro or sushi made from NTUC. <laughs> if the consumer cannot taste the difference, then... It's on the consumer. Lah. But if the consumer is a discerning, it has a discerning palate and is able to discern the temperature of the rice, the way the rice is cooked, the way the fish is sliced, VS uh, sake sushi, then obviously the consumer will enjoy whatever they enjoy. Yeah. Same goes for our cuisine. Ma. If, mm-hmm. the, if the consumer is able to discern the, the taste between a Hokkien Mee made by a Michelin star restaurant and a one made at a Kopitiam, why not? You know yeah, what I mean? Like, but- but that's it. I do believe that some cooks can cook better and with more soul than a chef can. That is my personal opinion. Because when you talk about soul, you know, even though they cook maybe 200 plates of the same thing, I always feel that our forefathers or our hawkers, they always cook with flavor at the forefront of their dishes. 
because now you know with restaurants and with uh, people trying trying to promote mm. their own products it's always about how things look like on Instagram right it's always yeah. about the how smart the concept of the dish is and that's the thing that I cannot quite agree with because for me the most important thing is taste and texture yeah and that's what that's, that's what the most important thing is library as well uh, we will make it look good at the end of the day, we are providing a service, an uh, expensive service at that. Mm-hmm. And consumers right nowadays, they don't look just for taste and flavor, especially at, the, at that price point, $250. They want to be seen there. They want to, be feel, they want to feel like royalty. They want to be able to post their experience on Instagram or Facebook to show people that they have been there. They want to make it memorable. And this is all just before the taste. So as a restaurant like Labyrinth, we have many, many factors that we have to care about our consumer, besides the most important thing, taste. Even the consumer mindset about where they want to be seen at, where they want to be taken a photo at. It's, all this is also taken into factors nowadays. It's, it's, it's so many more things nowadays. You know, you talked about um, how Labyrinth tries to champion local produce, right? I think that's mm. one of the, like, the most interesting concepts that I've seen in Singapore in that you guys actually did um, a mini map, right, that you present to your guests and you kind of highlight, oh, where's this produce from? It's from this farm, this soy sauce is from this brewery and things like that. I found that really fascinating. Can you tell me about some of the ingredients that you use around Singapore? So um, we are constantly in search of local producers and farmers. And I myself, when I came back to visit Singapore in 2018, August, I was in Australia. I, I ate at Labyrinth for the fourth time and every year is different. And this is the year that I was like, wow, what the fuck? I don't even know that there are all these farms in Singapore. And uh, Labyrinth had a rhythm and Han had his own uh, vision and his path because he's, he's always changing in a sense. He's never comfortable with himself. Uh. So he keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And that's a, that's a year that I was like, wow, Singaporean cuisine has a champion of Labyrinth. And look at the map and I was like, I didn't even know that this existed. I only know the goat farm only. <laughs> and, and that's all. That's all I know. I'm like, wow, am I even Singaporean? I know about other countries and whatnot, but I don't know my own home where I served my NS for two years. So that made me really reflect on the flight back home. Now. And regarding local, local producers, we have a variety. From seafood, we have like Ahua Keilong. Uh, we try to work with some of them like uh, Apollo but it didn't really work out. There, there's actually quite a few of local, local producers of seafood, but we choose to work with Awa because she's a very good friend of us and constant, consistently deliver quality. As for herbs, we work with Edible Gardens and we grew our own corn there. We also use hay dairies a little bit. We have uh, this little farm called Green Eco Circle Farm and she's this uh, elderly lady. She has her own plot of land in Kranji and she farms for fun. And she was like, oh, maybe I should start some stuff. So we used like kaduk or pandan lemongrass or uh, this thing called wandering jew. It's a herb that is like purple on one side and green on another side. We use, use, use it to make langte. We use it for our kakigori. And uh, we used to use crocodile farms and frog farm as well. There's, there's variety. La. It's quite a few. Yeah. Isn't the crocodile farm closed already? Um, there, are, there used to be two. But as the, the one that's based in Kranji, they bought over the other one. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, and that crocodile farm is even older than the modern Singapore. 
When I was younger, I went to, went to the crocodile farm in Singapore and I think it was so, like, the experience was so special. Like, you know, just so surreal to see crocodiles in Singapore. In, in, in was it the one in Aogang or Coven? I can't remember because I was so young. I think I must have been about six years old. But I remember, like, it was like... Um, like a like a ditch do you call it a ditch like where yeah. the where the crocodiles were so i saw that you were using crocodile meat to make satay how was that like i mean crocodile is so lean right <coughs> i actually grew up with crocodile meat surprisingly i don't even know why so as a kid right uh, either in uh, medicinal chinese uh soups which they say cures asthma or in stir fries like that in which we buy they deep fry it and they stir fry in this sauce with uh, like ginger mm. it was so good so for me, crocodile meat is not something like crazy. So it's sort of something I grew up with. So I'm very surprised when we first launched this uh, dish. Many people were very like squirmish about it. And uh, we made a dish, uh, three skewers. It's called chicken, chicken, chicken. So basically, it's a dish to make pe- challenge people's conception concept uh, about what protein is okay and what protein is not okay. And they're all, all three of it are local. Chicken, uh, frog, and crocodile. And we serve three skewers together and we don't give any clues as to what is what. The consumer eats first and after that they have the guess which is which according to the sequence. And it was chicken breast, uh, crocodile uh, tail meat. The tail, is the, the, the tail is the most tender part. Mm. And because this farm, when they kill the crocodile and due to uh, the demand of being that high, they freeze the meat. Mm. That's why it's tough. So we work, we work out a special agreement with them to not freeze the meat for our usage. And they were very, very gracious. They didn't need our business at all. We were like only three kilos a week. It was, it was just something fun for them as well. I mean, I, met, I went to the farm and I spoke with the owner and they were actually very, very private regarding the whole farm because the main sort of literally in the ladder. The meat is just extra. Mm. And they were very, very gracious when they heard about our story, what we're trying to do. They were like, hey, we're interested to do that. And the, the guy's name is Robin, the second generation owner. It really helped make all this uh, happen. Here in Australia, we have crocodile in, in the supermarket. And so yeah. I think I tried it once <coughs> and then I was like, nah, I'm never going to buy this again because it's so dry. Like there is no fat in it and it's so sinewy. But I think I, yeah. I imagine that the claw must have a different texture. Is it more collagen rich and more Yeah, different? so the, the claws, right, they usually use in brace so that the skin breaks down to almost like a sea cucumber type texture. Mm. Uh, but for our dish it was satay so we used the lean part of the tail yeah. and there's a very specific part of the tail that is um, the, not, not the whole tail as well so it was a very, it was a very, very uh, niche thing like even for the ingredient, ingredient procurement and we marinated in our satay spices and uh, we used uh, some of the traditional te- tenderizing techniques to make it tender and we cook it just nice and not overcooked and so all these factors right came together to make satay Good lah, and people kind of differentiate it from uh, chicken breast. That's amazing. And they're like they, they expect it to be like very tough and like what you say sinewy or dry, but if like I said, the elevation, which is the love and the technique, yeah. will make it better. Mm. But it's not something they can shout about. It's just something they taste it and like, oh, cooked meat actually not bad. But I don't know the work and the R and D goes into it. Yeah, I feel that with local cuisine or local ingredients, there's not much documentation, so it's really very hard to. Uh, really learn about the techniques that can elevate a produce or 
or to learn about, you know, flavor combinations, right? When I was writing my cookbook, Wet Market to Table, I think that was the biggest, biggest struggle that I had because there wasn't much documentation at all. So for you, yeah. you know, when you go through your R&D process, what is that process like? So with the crocodile, when they first gave me the samples, they gave me like ribs and loin and tail and they were all frozen. And when I tried all of them, they, were, they felt a little bit dry. And knowing that they were frozen, I, I, asked, I asked him, like, is it supposed to get fresh ones? Like, yeah, but nobody ever asked for that. For the Chinese they all do ask for that. Like, I don't know, like, I feel like I want to try fresh ones. Same as our quail as well. Uncle William used to supply us with frozen quails. And we always have one that is dry. So I told Uncle William, can we try fresh as well? Because freezing caused the protein to change. Even though you flash freeze or whatever, it changes. Mm. So, we try, so we swap all the fresh. And only when swapping it fresh, I found that the tail has the most potential. It was still tough, but it has the most potential. So I tried um, marinating. I tried using pineapple enzymes, and it worked out well. And pineapple is still in line with satay. Oh, and there it is. The dish is born. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I love some of the dishes that you've posted recently on Instagram, like your mooncake. The, ones, the one that looks like a piece of jade. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. I mean, was it a completely natural uh, colouring from pandan? What, what, what was it? Mm. Um, so that, that, that was a mooncake and it was just for one week last year at Mid-Autumn Festival. And uh, he, Chef told me that he wanted a mooncake. Okay, I was like, okay, sure, let's do it. And I've been always trying to do something, the extra amount of the, the oomph, the... The punch, you know, the thing that people are like, oh, this is what I paid for at Labyrinth. It's not just something that is nice. It's nice is not enough. Delicious is not enough. It has to be something more. And uh, we come up with a coconut pandan mooncake that is still in line with our philosophy. And the filling was durian. It was a durian uh, tau swan. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was cooked with tau swan. And then the tau swan provided the texture and the durian provided the aroma. Then paired with coconut and pandan of course, it was supposed to replace another, another durian paddy for. So we, he gave me the idea of a mooncake and one durian in it. So he gave me these guidelines and I made that, that, that one. And the skin was actually mochi. And the color of it was actually inspired by uh, my time in Sydney when I did a fondant wedding cake class. <laughs> and they, they went fondant to create this marbling effect. So like, why not I don't do it in mochi as well? And it turned out very, very nicely as well. And it turned out super nice. Oh, that's, uh, so that's, so, that's so inspiring. Like you taking, uh, say, Western techniques and applying them to local food and local flavors. Let's talk about that passion project that you did during CB. So what happened during CB for you? Okay, so uh, when Dine-In was banned, uh, we did the numbers on delivery concepts. And it couldn't work out at all. So the close for two months in... April and May. So I had eight weeks of time to kill and I had to stay at home and everything is cold outside. And I'm living alone uh, with like uh, housemates uh, where I rent my house out. Uh. I'm super bored and I'm, I'm, the one thing I'm really afraid of is being bored. I just decided to cook well. And I had, I had a Paco Jack sitting in my kitchen as well. But then I bought a second Paco Jack. It was such a good deal I bought it. I was like, okay, I'm going to sell ice cream. And uh, I had to cook food as well. Uh. To kill time. It's just to kill time. <laughs> and it was like seven weeks of cooking. And the response was overwhelming. I had so much backlog of orders and I stopped taking orders. And I saw like, 
I'm not going to kill myself really. I will wake up in the morning at 8 a.m., go to the market multiple times because I only had two hands. And I had to queue up and fight with aunties or amas who were hoardings. <laughs> and the ingredients that were not available are like flour. Flour was like gold. Yeast was gold. And laksa noodles, I remember. It was, it was out for two weeks. I, I cannot sell laksa anymore. Or freaking uh, Hokkien Mi. I cannot cook Hokkien Mi if there was no chu mi for the thick bihun. So you're tiring mentally and physically. I had to fight a lot of other people for ingredients. And I had to go like multiple times to the market. And obviously, the horse kitchen is damn tiring to work in. I had to wash everything myself, like seven to eight times full sinks. And I was like, ah. It, and then business time took up, picked up the article regarding this. And it even become more, even more popular. <laughs> I was like, I was, I, I was like, I want to stop really. And my backlog was like uh, six months, uh, not six months, six weeks ahead. And I was like, okay, this needs to stop. Stop taking orders. And I was like, okay, I'm going to just gonna do one a day. So I don't kill myself. Because I wasn't in it for the money anyway. I was need to kill time. And I was kidding, kidding myself as well. I wasn't eating as well. I wasn't whatever. I, was, I lost so much weight doing CV actually. I lost like six kilos wow. these two months. So, so like, okay, something good came out of it. Everybody else gave weight, but I lost weight. It's the toughest time ever. And like doing my own ordering, uh, taking orders, sending the orders, cooking, washing, cleaning the, scrubbing the floors. And I have zero storage space. Yeah. The domestic fridge, right? I had like a shelf like this. I had like two shelf space of that. So daily prep, even stocks or oils, daily prep. And I was like so tired. But it was great because it forced me to really consider things like food costing, the, out, the input vs output. Like, because my most valuable thing right now was time. Like, if I sold laksa or I sold a tart, I might put less time into the tart, but I can take two X profits. Hmm. So I got me to think more on the business side of things, not just simply just cooking. That was what I was yeah. thinking. I was like, why would you pick local food to, to sell? I mean, like you're cooking out of a small domestic uh, <coughs> kitchen. Right. You don't have much storage space. You, you have to like fight with all these aunties. You have hard to source ingredients and like a long ingredient list. Why cook local food? I mean, why didn't you just yeah. make and sell it for like maybe 20 bucks per portion. Right, right. But in hindsight now, because the time in April it was something very new, cooking, home cooking, selling food from home. I think I did it the first week of uh, CB. Right now it's everywhere already. And people learn the lessons and things have morphed. I couldn't even buy takeaway boxes. My, my, my cake boxes were out of stock. Yeah. So it was a very, very different time from right now. Everything was like fighting for it. We were fighting for everything from the cake boxes to takeaway boxes to sugar. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's a crazy time. And my menu evolved constantly. I did set menus for families. Then I realized that everybody's at home. Right? I might as well just do set menus. I, I, I didn't choose whether you want like pichota bihun or you want a hokkien mee. Then we have two, three sides and perhaps dessert if you want, you can add on. Speaking of your pichota bihun, right? Um, I was actually surprised that you went to braise the pig trotters first before making the bihun because most people just use the canned stuff, right? So why go, yeah. why go to all that trouble? Uh, because I hate the bones in the canned stuff. You know the calcified bones? Yeah. Like in the canned macro. Do you know that my husband actually like eats the bones? <laughs> I, know, I know people who eat it. It's, actually, it's a very good source of calcium, but I, I, I found it actually disgusting. It's like powdered bones. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for stuff, but uh, 
I, I hated it. And you just pick it up instead of making your own. I mean, my saw, if I want to pick it up, I might just make it myself, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> At least I can control the flavor. And if I'm going to be selling pig trotter bihun for uh, 55 bucks for four packs, I had better put more effort into it. That's, yeah. that's the X factor that people look for. The, the, the care and love in elevation of Asian cuisine. Right? Mm-hmm. This, this is where we talked more previously, elevation. Yes. It's not something like a technique or whatever. It's just more care, more, yeah. more effort. So you talked about um, how this um, side hustle kind of taught you about costing and things like that. Did you feel that it taught you anything about consumers' perception of local food and how much they're willing to pay? How would you attract them to pay more for local food? I guess I'm in a quite a unique position in the sense that they know they, they the consumers they knew my background they knew I was kind of not they knew I was uh, a HR labyrinth. So in a sense they already, they already had this sort of confidence to pay. There's there's this backing behind it behind what I put out. The videos helped, whereby I show them the process. How much effort? Yeah, how much effort goes into it? It's not it's not just step it together and it happens. Not like alu alu. I show them on my Instagram stories that. I will do this, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Then you get this bloody thing on your, on your table. Yeah. If you don't appreciate it, never mind. I don't take your order. I was refusing orders anyway. So, whether, how to get Singaporeans to pay more? I guess it's understanding and education yeah. behind the craft of it. Yeah. And when you understand and, understand and appreciate the craft of it, then you realize, oh, actually, maybe I'm paying too little for it. Like, if, yeah. they, if they try to make Ang Kukwe, or if they try to make some Tau Sa Pao, they realize that what the hell, man, 80 cents per Tau Sa Pao is WTF compared to a shoe that you put some cream put for $50. Yeah. So I guess education and exposure. Mm, I think that is very in line with what, I, what I'm trying to do with Singapore noodles because a while ago I posted this video on how to make vegetarian bihun from scratch. From making the vegetarian chasu to making the vegetarian goose and everything. And I... Like through the making of the whole process, I myself was really surprised by how much time and effort it took. It was like my longest video at that point. And I think a lot of people the next day, they went to buy vegetarian bihun for breakfast and they texted me and they said, oh my God, Pam, I'm like seeing this $2 meal in a completely new light. I didn't know that so yes. much went into it. It's, it's so important because I myself, back in 2014, I never gave a talk about sushi. But I watched Jiro Dreams of Sushi and I saw how much love and craft and artisanal qualities that can go into a humble piece of sushi. Rice, fish, soy. And I was like, wow, maybe there's something to it. So I went to try Shinji at Raffles and that's it really. It's my slippery, sloped down, expensive Japanese kaisekis and sushi and omakase. Mm. And never look back. Yeah. And people ask me, is it really worth it? Three, two, three dollars bucks per a pop for sushi they can get at NTC or Sakai, and I told them, it's a matter of whether you are able to discern the qualities of it. If you as a diner, you are unable to discern the difference, you will not enjoy it. Just like expensive. If you don't know the, the, the value or history behind a Patek Philippe, it's just a watch. Hmm. But if you're a watch enthusiast, you love the history, the heritage of it, a Patek Philippe is so much more than just a watch. Hmm. But at the end of the day, it's up to the consumer. I think Singaporeans just have to be more appreciative uh, of what we see every day because it might be gone very soon yeah. due to many, many various factors. Yeah. Not, not just because of not being appreciative, but because of like rising manpower costs, uh, 
the, the first, gener- first or second gener- generation is being much older. Mm. And many factors that are deterring younger blood to go into FMB, much less heritage cuisine. So it's so many factors that's preventing us preserving our food culture. If you're a guy 20 years old, why would you want to be a chef, really? For 1.6 to 1.8K monthly salary before CPF and you work twice the hours. Of course, you go for Lezami or Odette. What? Because with three stars on your resume, you can go further. Why would you go Heritage Cuisine or Hawker for about the same amount of salary, but the future is unknown or shaky? It's, for me, it's, it's stereotype and racism. We are racist to our own culture, racist to our own people. You're willing to pay uh, five chicken breast like a story, but 20 cents per, 40 cents, 50 cents per stick of satay, you, you're, you, you, you're indifferent to it. Like, what's up with that? What's up with that? Like, it's, it's such a big disparity in terms of the pricing and what are people are willing to pay for. Which is why it's, not, it's easy for younger cooks to go into Japanese or French or Italian because that's what people are paying. So we cannot blame the younger cooks that they don't want to do local cuisine or local food and they, don't, they say that they're not uh, championing the local culture because it's the spending pattern of the humor that drives what the, 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 what are the, the demand. The demand drives the supply. The demand is there for this, all these other cultures and cuisines. That's what the demand that people go to do, where the demand is. So many people, gener- older generations say, oh, younger people, they don't want to do uh, hard work. They don't want to go to local cuisine. They don't want to do uh, hawker. But it's wrong. It's, you're not willing to pay. You're not willing to pay for it. What? Mm-hmm. I, I, got, I, I just learned of this girl who is doing ang ku kueh at home by hand, artisanal. Two bucks per ang ku kueh. Some people might even say it's expensive. Eh? But I think, what the fuck? Two bucks per ang ku kueh. Your time and effort into that is too cheap already. Why? Why do you want to do that? You have to fry the paste. You, have to, you first have to peel the soybean or peel the thing. Then you have to cook, fry, steam the thing. Then fry the paste. Then you make your ang ku kueh. Then you steam. Then you put a leaf on it. It's so much more effort to say I make a shoe and I just and I put it in the oven, I make 200 per one batch. And I can sell it with uh, some uh, creme anglaise or some cream inside. It's just crazy. It's crazy about the disparity of what people are willing to pay and what the reality is of the cost of it, both monetary and physical. So I think that has to change. Firstly, consumer pattern and habits, it has to change. If not, the culture will never, will never be preserved fully. Mm. Never will. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending your time with me and for chatting with me. It's been super eye-opening and for you know sharing your story as well, your personal story. Yeah, no worries, no worries. See bye, you. Bye.